Hey, this is John Fanta from Fox College Hoops and Big East Shootaround. You're listening to the best podcast on the Seton Hall Pirates, Left Coast Pirates. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Good morning to you, Tommy. I don't know, man. I think I'm still just kind of disappointed right now. Why? As we move further and further away from all the coronavirus news and just coming to the reality that the entire season is now canceled. It's it's not going to happen. It's not going to be postponed. You're seeing all these articles, these fun things to kind of pass the time with the NCAA tournament simulators out there. And the New York Post has Seton Hall going on to win the national title, ironically, right? You know, a little clickbait kind of action. But to sit back and read how Seton Hall takes down Duke in the national title game and is a coronation on what could have been it's just it's a little disappointing and to me that's the way i'm going to remember this year it's going to be what if when we started the whole year with if not now when because when was happening we we were winning at nova for the first time in 26 years we were sharing the title for the biggies regular season miles powell was being crowned biggies player of the year first team all american things were happening and we're going to look back and it's going to be what if. That's going to be my culminating thought on this entire year, even though there's going to be so many fun things that we're going to go back and break down and recap on today's podcast. If not now, when? No. What if, Tommy? What if? You, you know, I was ready to move on, Mike. Like I said last week, I was, I was past the grieving. I was into the celebrating. And the first thing I see late last week was Tyler Calvaruzzo running a simulator And Rutgers beating Duke for the finals. It was crazy. And now this morning, I wake up, I pop open the Twitter, and what do I see? Like you said, Zach Braziller coming out with Seton Hall beating Duke. Just stop. Stop the noise already. Come on. We've got a season we can recap, a season we can celebrate. Let's move on with this. Where do you want to start? Well... I think one thing that we were really remiss this season and not bringing to the forefront more often was this was the 40th anniversary of the Big East opening its doors and we didn't talk enough about the first Seton Hall team. You know, one of the great things about this podcast is afforded me the opportunity to meet people, to meet people that we normally wouldn't meet in life. And I met somebody a gentleman by the name Dan Dunn. Dan Dunn was one of the first players to play for Seton Hall in the Big East, and we've struck up some sort of a friendship over uh, social media, and we text each other a bunch. 
and Dan was gracious enough to send us in some recordings on his thoughts on what it meant to him to be on that first Seton Hall team. And I think we're going to play it here, and I think it's quite enjoyable. Didn't they actually have some kind of ceremony at one of the games this year honoring that 40th anniversary team? I believe it was the St. John's game. I think at halftime or before the St. John's game, they brought out as many players as they could and they celebrated it. We did a quick mention of it, but we I don't know that we did enough. Uh, we didn't do it at enough service. I, I hate to kind of do this. I'm not trying to take a shot at the university, but a team that represents the 40th anniversary of us being part of the Big East understanding how important it is to be a part of the Big East today for our current survival in the landscape of college basketball after everything kind of blew up a few years back. We should be more respectful to the overall history uh, of this program, the players that kind of put us on the map and have started this journey, and we don't do enough of that. So I'm with you. A, A thing that I enjoy most about this podcast is some of the interview segments that we do, getting to relive some of the history or explore some of the history back to when I was even just being born or a kid, right? In 1980. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a 79. So I just officially dated myself, but there's not that historical archive on Seton Hall basketball that allows us to go back and relive these kind of moments. And when Dan and his teammates are gracious enough to share some of their insight, that's some pretty cool stuff. Well, here's some thoughts from Dan Dunn. My name is Dan Dunn. I played at Seton Hall from 1979 to 1983, the first four years of the Big East. I'm 6'10", I played the center position. Uh, what does it mean to be part of the first Seton Hall team ever playing the Big East? Well, uh, for me, it was um, to be part of history. It was the biggest thing. Uh, we laid the groundwork for the pirate teams that came after us. Uh, the first First four years of the Big East, we took a lot of beatings, but we um, laid the groundwork. We never gave up. We always played hard. Teams knew when they played us, they were in a scrap. What else? It was a street fight. But uh, we won some games, lost most of them. But um, we always played hard, and we set the groundwork and the, uh, the example for other teams to follow. If I had to name one thing I learned from Coach Rafferty, what would it be? Uh, probably the biggest thing would be how to be a man. Uh, Coach... Uh, Coach Rafty was one of the five men in my life who were a huge influence. Uh, he, show, he taught me how to take responsibility for my actions. Uh, he taught me how to work as a team and work for a common goal. And one of the things he'd always tell us was, uh, would know, know what we're after, know what we're after, is what coaches always tell us. And even to this day, uh, 40 years later, we'll get with our teammates, and that'll be one of his sayings, that we, one of the Billyisms that we come up with, know what we're after. One of the most memorable moment of the season and why. Actually, there were two moments in the season that were uh, memorable. Uh, one of them was when we were playing Syracuse. They were number nine in the country, and we're playing at Manly, the Manly, uh, the, the Manly closed. And they beat us like a drum. They beat us by 25, but I had to play against Roosevelt Bowie. And Roosevelt Bowie, 6'11", uh, All-American, got drafted in the NBA by, I believe, Dallas or Golden State, went overseas in Italy and, and, and had a great career over there. But he was a monster. He played like he was possessed, blocking shots, running the floor, dunking on us, uh, totally dominated the game inside and out. And it just um, it was the toughest, toughest, toughest center I ever, ever had to play against in my four years at the Big East. And I played against Patrick Ewing and Akeem Olajuwon and, 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 and Bill Wennington and a whole bunch of other guys. But um, Roosevelt Vui by far was the best that I had to play against. Um, other guys who I thought were tough in the league were, uh, besides Roosevelt Bowie, who was always very good. Reggie Carter and Wayne McCoy from St. John's were good. Um, Georgetown had 
Craig Sky Shelton, who was 6'7", could jump out of the gym. Dominique Wilkins like jumps. Uh, Sleepy Floyd, Johnny Durham, Connecticut had Corny Thompson, Bruce Kaczynski, who later played in the NBA, and, of course, uh, BC had John Bagley. So that was a pretty tough conference to start with, never mind what, what was to come years later. Who, in my opinion, was the best player in 79, 80? was Roosevelt Bowie. Roosevelt Bowie, hands down, because I had to play against him. And he was, like I said before, just um, almost demonic in how he played, how intense he was, how how physical he was, how athletic he was. And it was uh, something that I, I know I, I couldn't, I didn't handle very well because uh, he had quite a few points on me. Um, but the uh, the best player, I believe, the conference of the year was Craig Sky Shelton. Did I believe that the Biggies would evolve into something special over the years? Um, we knew it was, was different when we came in. Uh, because we wouldn't be playing Canisius anymore. We wouldn't be playing Wagner anymore. We wouldn't be playing Army, Lehigh, Holy Cross, Philly Dickinson. We knew we'd have one year with them, and then we had to go double round robin with everybody else. So we knew uh, probably going in first year, all right, we can, we can finish around 500 hopefully overall. But then the next couple of years were going to be hard because we had to play 16 games. Villanova was coming in. Uh, my sophomore year, and then, then then Pittsburgh came in, so we knew we had, we would uh, lose teams to play against that we would probably win against. Like we would lose five wins: Canisius, Wagner, Army, Holy Cross. We would lose those wins and probably pick up six or seven more losses playing Georgetown twice, you know, Syracuse twice, St. <laughs> John's twice, Connecticut twice, BC twice. So we were lucky if we can you know beat Providence twice. Maybe get a split with St. John's or Connecticut or somebody. Describe what it was like to play home games in historic Walsh Auditorium. I'll tell you, there's no place better to play than Walsh Auditorium. Ninth, built in the 1930s, old school parkade, dark floor. We, we used to call it the dungeon, was the nickname we had for it, was the dungeon, because it, um, it was so dark and, and, and intimidating. When opposing teams came in, it, it was like six more points for us. And then the fans, you pack in 2,300 to probably 3,000 fans on there. And you'll be in the third row of the stands, but you'll be like eight feet from the floor. And it was very intimidating for opposing teams to come in. That was our, our sixth man, really. And the atmosphere was great. Uh, we would score the first bucket. Uh, the frats would throw toilet paper, roll the toilet paper onto the floor and streamers. And uh, the pep band and, and was going. And they play and they play um, the Seton Hall fight song. It, it was it was very... Of very good to play and very nice and, and fun to play in. I, I miss it. Uh, when we play in bigger arenas, it was um, kind of it, it lost its, its appeal when we played in bigger arenas. But when we played at Walsh, that was close to our hearts. And uh, it's always magical to go back from time to time and go in the gym, even though it's changed a lot now since uh, since I was there in the early 80s. But it still holds that magic. Um, I went to the Stony Brook game early in the season. And the atmosphere, like, I was ready to go out and take layups, you know, 40 years later. It was uh, it's a magical place to play. It was, it's, it's close to my heart. And um, one, of, one of the best memories I have of my four years at, at Seton Hall was playing at Walsh Auditorium. The, uh, the memorable moments. One of them was playing against Roosevelt Bowie at Manly. The second one was we played at St. John's, and they were 14th in the country. And St. John's was, um, they had Wayne McCoy, uh, Reggie Carter, Ronnie Blair, Bernard Wrencher. They had a real good team, New York City 
uh, schoolyard tough, 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 tough players. And they're beating us like a drum in the second half. They ended up beating us 97 to 64. But um, in the second half, they were beating us by 30. And um, Bill Raftery sends our, our manager, um, uh, Tommy Connolly, writes a note, sends it, sends it to Thompson, gives it to Tommy Connolly, our manager, during the game, tells him to go over and give it to Louis Carnesecca on the, on, on, the, on the St. John's bench. So during the game, uh, Tommy Connolly, our manager, runs over with the snow from Bill Rafferty, gives it to Lou Carnesecca. And I'm sitting next to Bill Rafferty on the bench at the time, and Louis looks over at, at Bill, and Bill like, holds his arms up like, what do you want us to do? The note said, Dear Louis, I surrender. Love, Bill. <laughs> and during the timeout, Billy and, and Lou met at, um, met at the scores table, and they discussed like, what he wanted us to run because it ended up being a scrimmage. And, and, and Lou was like, can you run a 2-3 against us? So Billy came back and said, all right, guys, we're going 2-3 the rest of the game because the, St. John's wanted to work on against the 2-3. So that was another thing I remembered from uh, my first year uh, in the Big East. I'll tell you, Mike. Okay. I can't wait. We're gonna have we're gonna have Dan Dunn back on during the summer session series. We'll figure out when, but I can't wait. This guy is funny. He's got some great stories he shared with me, and I can't wait till we have him on again. I'm looking forward to it. This gonna be a fun summer. I know we're gonna be kind of once again, what if? And everyone's still gonna have that lingering thought. But we're gonna move on. We're gonna talk to some. Uh, glory day heroes of Seton Hall's past, maybe some current day players that we have lined up. It should be a, a pretty good time to to pass the summer as we kind of head into the new year. And hopefully this is all behind us and we're playing basketball again in the fall. Well, Mikey, I want to take a look at this year. I think we have to do it in the way we like doing it. We got to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. But in true LCP fashion, we got to end up with the positive. So let's look at the ugly, the bad, and the good of this year. I thought you were going to call me like the maker of darkness again or whatever. <laughs> the master yeah. of darkness. The master of darkness. That's right. I have Debbie Downer, glass half empty. I, you were the guy who started this podcast with the glass half empty, and somehow you've transitioned this moniker over to me. It's, I it's don't not... know what you're talking about, Mike. I I see nothing but honey and roses, baby. But you're right. We're going to end this podcast on a truly positive note as the season kind of had some highly climactic, you know, achievements. But like any Seton Hall season, there is the roller coaster. There's the, the things that we did well, the things we could have improved upon. So if, if we didn't do it in this format, we wouldn't be doing it justice per se. So I'm with you. Let's start it off with the ugly. And I want to kick it off with one of your favorites over the last few years. And it's going to be a little bittersweet to see him go. But I want to start off with the topic of player development associated to Torian Thompson. Uh, it, it kills me. I, I, I think it's, this is going to be one of those biggest cases of what if or what could have been with this player, Mike. Here's a guy who we were getting from Syracuse out of the ACC as a freshman transfer, nine points a game, four rebounds, and we were projecting him to be the second leading scorer on the team last year. I remember when they first announced that he was committing to Seton Hall. I said to you, this is back in the Delgado senior season. I'm like, maybe we can get a waiver. Maybe we can get an immediate eligibility waiver. And he could be on that Delgado, Carrington, Desi Rodriguez, Ishinogo senior collecting team. And I'm like, this could be great. And obviously he had to sit out the one year. I'm like, all right, that's probably for the best. Now he's going to solidify the team uh, in the previous year. And that's not what happened. 
We were talking about him possibly being a one-and-done NBA player. Well, he sort of was one-and-done, Tommy. You know, it's crazy to think. I mean, here's a guy that played at a Power 5 conference, like you mentioned. He had nine points and four rebounds per game as a freshman. Left Syracuse. That that doesn't break my heart in the least bit. And all the guys that are leaving Syracuse this year, it doesn't break my heart. He had a full year to acclimate himself with the Seton Hall ways. And just for whatever reason, it couldn't be done. I mean, think about his time at Seton Hall, Mike. This kid didn't start a single game in two years at the Hall. This year, he played one game for four garbage time minutes. But but you have to admit, those four minutes were some of the most exciting minutes the entire season that the crowd got involved with. The cheers were just off the charts. Just him walking to the scorer's table. I felt like the building was giving a standing ovation. It was awesome. See, it just wasn't me, Mike. But we will have our moments of Torian Thompson. We will have his big offensive outburst against DePaul last year. He had that really magical game against Kentucky where he dished out the game-winning assist on a really spectacular play. I mean, he, he made the right play, Mike. Here's the enigma of Torian Thompson. That was a special game, the victory at MSG against Kentucky for so many different reasons, but he's at the epicenter of it all, making plays in overtime. It wasn't just the pass when you thought he was going to put up the shot like he did you know, 99 out of 100 times previously. I mean, he was, make, he was scoring buckets. He was making the right plays. You saw the potential in Thompson in that moment, and you're like, where is this on a night in and night out basis? This is the puzzle piece that we thought we were getting, and it wasn't. But at the end of the day, we all we end up with is all this fallout. We have the tampering violations from Shah texting his mother numerous times while he's technically still enro- uh, enrolled at Syracuse, and therefore leading to Willard getting a one-game suspension this year, Holloway getting a three-year show cause, and ultimately Seton Hall losing a scholarship for the upcoming season. He is going to be, in my opinion, one of the biggest enigmas I have seen in all my time following Seton Hall, and yet one of the most controversial and most talked about players on a message board for a guy who essentially didn't play. Well, Mike, he's not the only transfer that didn't seem to pan out for us yet. I don't know that we got a whole lot of development in Ika Obiagu this year. I mean, here's a kid, as a freshman, played for... Florida State in the ACC averaged 2.1 blocks per game in 10 minutes of playing time. Here's another kid that was a top 100 transfer. All the stories over the summer, or at least during the early summer, was he was slated to start in place of Mike Enzi and was going to be that missing puzzle piece that was going to vault Seton Hall up into the top 15. And what happens? I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's Tori and Thompson relived again. I, we have more time to see this play out. But once again, he only started four games in the season. And they were all during non-conference play. And at the end of the season, there's some eye-popping stats. We're going to do this for a couple players that we put into the ugly and bad category. But over his last 13 games, he averaged only 7.3 minutes per game, which included 17 in the Marquette blowout. So if you basically back out that Marquette game, man, he's below seven minutes a game, somewhere in the five to six minutes a game. And this was the player, as you said, 
top 100 recruit at Florida State, averaging two blocks for every 10 minutes. People were extrapolating that as he's going to block 10 shots a game if he played, you know, 40 minutes. I mean, it was a big disappointment. And you're sitting there going, as a listener, why the heck are we putting Ike in the ugly category? Now, that's just not fair. I'll put it this way. If Romaro Gill doesn't break onto the scene this year with his abundance of growth, would we have talked more about the lack of productivity out of Ike? Oh, absolutely. It would have been it would have been quite noticeable. And and here's the crazy part. Unless Ike progresses to the point Roe did this year, which was a big ask of anybody, that's gonna be crazy. He might not start next year, Mike. And if that's the case, if he ends up with a similar regression like Thompson, this is going to be another knock on what we're able to accomplish with Power 5 conference transfers. Because let's be honest, during Rowe's junior year, he was getting better as the season went along, right? He had the ankle injury, and Kevin Willard's like, wow, we, we hit a bump in the road for our January swoon because Rowe was out of the lineup. He was becoming a game changer for us, and we saw him come back and be an integral piece of Seton Hall's you know, defensive scheme. Ike went the opposite direction. Ike started off the year pretty good, and then he regressed. So what makes you think that he's going to become more like Roe and not like Thompson? Now, so far, we've talked about kind of conceptual ugliness for the season. Let's point out a specific point of ugly. And I'm going to bring up the opening game for us at the Battle of Atlantis, where we had a 19-point lead against Oregon. I don't want to talk about this game. And I collapse. don't want to talk about this I, game. I don't want to talk about it either, but this was an ugly stain. We could have put the Xavier game in here. We could have put the Providence game in here. But this was a game against another top 15 ranked opponent. We were having our way with them. I What was it? 10, 15 minutes left in the game. And it just all fell aside. They got hot in the second half. They hit like five or six three-pointers right out of the chute to start the second half. And you're right. They were up by 19. And this is where I kind of think I flipped the script in terms of the angry podcast throughout the year. I thought that we were on the national stage. And I thought we were on the national stage during Thanksgiving feast week. Everyone is proclaiming this tournament as much watch college basketball at that time of year. And we missed out on an opportunity to win that game move on and play Gonzaga and then possibly some type of a matchup against Michigan or North Carolina. There is a lot of fallout that occurs from losing this game at that point in time, your opportunity to improve your strength of schedule was supposed to be so robust because of this tournament. You end up playing Southern miss. Who's a, was like a net two forty-seven, and Iowa state. Oh, Oh, but we came back and finished two and one folks. Iowa State finished 12 and 20 on the season. And we were touting that win as a fantastic bounce back neutral site win. We could have been top five in the country, Tommy. Michigan went from out of the rankings to number four in the country. Right? I mean, where could we have been? Well, how hard do you think we would have gotten, Tom? Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. It just, it just it kills me on the inside. You know, any loss is is bad. But you add to that a loss where we had a double-digit lead, it, it's just painful. It's just pain. Let's move on. 
I know. I, I, I'm not, I, one more point here. One more point before we move on. We're talking about the what ifs. We're talking about could they been a two seed if they run the Big East tournament? You solidify your out of conference schedule with wins here or a good showing here, and Seton Hall would have been in a strong two, and we'd be having a conversation of are they a one seed? That's the kind of opportunity that we missed. To be honest, we really did. Now, the next thing on our list, I don't know if we should add in an ugly category, Mike, because it gave us so much good quality podcasting material this year. But Willard continues with the post-game loss quote excuses. I mean, it just keeps coming. I mean, they're they're frustrating, but you're right. They're kind of fun when we actually kind of sit down and jot our notes and decide how we want to attack it on the, that week's episode. But it, but it is frustrating. It's, it's all about... Tons of deflection, right? He, he never takes accountability in our eyes. Oh, once again, too many road games, you know, going forward. I'm, I'm not going to be so tough on the schedule yet after they're at the end of the Big East season. Well, it was that tough non-conference road schedule that made us so strong this year. He's constantly flip-flopping and just kind of changing the narrative based on how he wants to position it. You know, we didn't have a good week in practice. I'm, I'm tired of hearing those types of deflections, right? But my favorite, Tommy, my favorite was after going back to that Oregon game, everyone remembers the ball did not go to Miles Powell. Somehow the ball found its way into Javar Reynolds' hands and he misses a drive uh, along the left-hand side as essentially the final shot in that game. And in the postgame, he was directly asked, why did Shavar take the final shot? I think it all occurred to the chaos of the moment. But his first answer to that question, he just starts going off on tangents because Sandro played tough at the five. And I remember in our podcast recapping that week, I lost it. I'm like, Sandro played tough at the five? Shavar Reynolds took the game-winning shot because Sandro played tough at the five. It's just, it's a little, it's just a little frustrating to hear Kevin over and over again deflect. What, what else you know, do you have as, as much as he deflects, he makes promises that never happen. So uh, he, uh, is he a coach or is he a politician at this point? You know, when Sandro got hurt, he started talking about, Torian Thompson perhaps getting some more playing time. Obviously, we never saw that since T got four minutes for the season. He also talked about working Anthony Nelson back into the rotation more with Q and Miles hurting with knee tendonitis or not. And some of his updates were just flat out lies. I mean, Miles Powell turns his ankle. Oh, he's out for a, a month. He's not playing for a month. We can't even put weight on it. Miles Powell gets a concussion. He's out indefinitely. Not not going to see him for a while. We should just plan on not having him. He's back after missing two games. And he Combined. and he destroys it at the ball. He absolutely goes man- <laughs> after both of these injuries. He went out in maniacal fashion. 37 against Michigan State. I think he had 29 if I'm not wrong against the ball. But he just went nuts. <laughs> Two major injuries in the eyes of Kevin Willard in which the season is over and he misses a combined two games. Two games. Yet you watch Quincy McKnight basically bend his leg in a direction that it shouldn't be going. And after the game, he's like, ah, that one's fine. No, don't worry about that one. <laughs> Quincy McKnight <laughs> is plastic, man, if you ask me. Oh, man. But finally, I, Mike, the ugliest thing of this season. And and this is going to sound weird, but it's backing into the Big East title. We had two games left to play in the season. We just needed one to win the Big East title outright. 
the first time since 92-93, and we couldn't win either game. Look, I, there's so many different things about this. I mean, what hurts me is it's all about what happens on the court, that special moment, right? So we're watching the start of senior night and the building's full and you just feel it's a special time, right? And yet the unfortunate moments as the way the season ends is we're on the wrong side of it, right? You're, you're watching Creighton blow us out for the final 10 minutes in their building. They're rushing the court, raising a banner, cutting down the nets and hoisting a trophy. You know, our fans wanted something of this sort, you know, in their own vision to end the season as part of that ultimate goal. But with the season being cut short, none of that's going to happen. And, and you alluded to it in the, in the Oregon piece as to the, the Xavier game. So yes, these were two, two difficult games against teams in the top 15 in the country. There's no shame in losing both of these games. It's not like you lost to a bottom feeder like DePaul or something like that. You know, it, it, you, you can make the argument that, yes, the, all three teams were equal, and we on those given nights, we just were not the better team. Not in that game against Xavier. I know that we were 8-0 and we were due for a loss, but, Tommy, they came out in front of a packed building of 12,000-plus, and they got, what, it was a 30-6 to run to start the game? Yeah, and, and, you know, to a lesser extent, the game at Providence also hurt. You take either one of those games, and we've got that Big East title outright. Right, absolutely. So, you know, when you want to go 15-3, and 14-4, and four, you cannot have that kind of a special season and have those two types of clunker performances. You just can't. They played with fire throughout most of the season, being down by double digits, and in both of those games, they put themselves down by 20-plus and still made both of those games very respectable where you thought they had a chance to win, but they should have never been in those positions to start those games. Those starts were both ugly. Agree? Absolutely. But, Mike, not everything was ugly this season. There was plenty of bad, and let's talk about some <laughs> of that bad. We win the Big East title, and then we're, we haven't even gotten anything good yet. I love well, it. We, we, right, we want to end this. We want to end this podcast on a positive note. Sure, we got to sure, start sure. ugly. All right, all right. So we, we got through the ugly. We're on to bad. I want to focus and start this segment with end game management. I thought there was a couple sequences or a couple games where it had me a little bit worried about what was going to happen come NCAA tournament time, and it starts right out of the gate against Michigan State, right? It's electric. Once again, the building is full. We make a patented Seton Hall comeback in the second half. Miles Powell gets fouled, hits the three-pointer. We go up by five. And then what the heck happened, Tom? Typical 90 seconds left in a game, and what do we do? We poop the bed. I mean, we, we were talking about, you know, what was the offensive sequence? Should they have taken the air out of the ball? Should they have better floor balance? Well, whatever it was, we were just kind of picking it apart Walk going. the ball up. How many times do you lose a game up five with the ball, two to play? At home. Just, I, all right. So that was like a little bit of like, uh-oh, there's some writing on the wall here. Then you had the meltdown against Oregon. And then you had the Creighton loss at home, which once again could have just locked up the Big East regular season title at that point. They would have been like 11 and one. But, you know, down the stretch, we're changing our defensive assignments to try to mix it up. We get a shot clock violation, and we're like, whoa, look look at Kevin there. Here's the chiropractor going from man to man to a matchup zone, and, and Creighton goes shot clock violation. 
And then boom, the next time out of a timeout, Miles loses his guy and they hit a big three to basically ice that game. That was a little frustrating. It just seemed like they were discombobulated down the stretch there. But you know what? We had some questionable end game management, even in games that we won, Mike. I know we swept Butler this year, and Butler was a good team. Let, let's let's not let's not paint them in a bad uh, a bad light. They finished the season in a top twenty ranking. I mean, they were as high as five, which was probably a bit high, but they they were playing at that point up to that level. A home game against Butler, where Sandro made that last second layup off the inbounds pass to win it. They hit three three pointers. In the last, what was it, a minute 15 or something like that? There was just lots of bad decisions. Both Quincy and Miles chasing the ball handler, leaving that space on the court wide open for an easy three for McDermott. I mean, even games that we won were nail biters due to some end game management. If, if they don't win that game, if Sandro doesn't pull it out with the, the tip in from alley-oop from Q, this game falls into the ugly category easily it might have let off the ugly category absolutely right let's keep moving on here let's let's go back to player development i want to take the first guy and then i'm gonna let you have the second guy right i want to start off with miles kale i honestly thought that miles had a pretty rough season right people forget that miles was ranked 79th in his recruiting class coming in and he was getting better year after year in the beginning of the season you and i debated at nauseum who is going to be powell's robin is it going to be Sandro? Is it going to be Kale? And you made a strong argument for why it should be Miles, right? He's on the Pan Am American team. He averaged double figures last year. You know, he, he was going to be that other guard that was going to attract the attention when Miles got the ball. He ended up playing second fiddle to Jared Roden at his own position. What happened? That's the million dollar question at this point. Are we going to come back and find out that he had some injuries that held him back this season? You know, those secret injuries that nobody talks about until we have him on the on an interview show over a summer? I don't know what we're going to find out, but he was not the same player. He didn't have the same aggression on defense. He didn't have the same aggression on offense. His shot was failing him. I don't know, Mike. I don't know where it was going with this. I got frustrated because all of these challenges he was going through, he ends up in Willard's doghouse. And some guys react and get out of that doghouse. You know, he had this give and take relationship with Desi for all those years. And it seems like sometimes that would spark him. You know, one game, it seemed like miles after he got the benching, came out strong the next game, but it wasn't consistent. I mean, his offense, Tom, essentially disappeared. 37% from three last year, a very strong number, and led the team actually down to 28% this year. 28%. He was averaging seven minutes per game less. He was down from 10 points a game to six points a game. And in his last 12 Big East games, Tom, these numbers jump off the page. 20 minutes per game and only 4.1 points per game. He, he was out of the rotation, even though he was in the rotation. You were like, where is Miles tonight? I, I don't know, and I still believe he's our strongest defender no matter what the beat writers like to profess out there. He still gets that Kamar Baldwin, Sadiq Bey, Alpha Diallo matchup most of the time. He is our best defender. He is our most athletic player. And without him making a turn next year, we're going to have a rough time at it. But, Mike, I'll tell you who else had a disappointing season. I don't know what to make of it. 
But Anthony Nelson, Anthony Nelson was supposed to be that first guard off the bench, playing major minutes, backing up the point. We were saying again, this kid's going to be starting by the end of the season. And it just didn't happen. He had breakout performances last year against Nova in the Big East tournament and in the Wolford game. He showed huge promise this year when Miles Powell was out. He made he had starts against Maryland, and I know it's not as impressive, but Prairie View again. He had 36 minutes a game. He scored 11 points, had five and a half assists, and two and a half steals for each game. And he shot 61%. And then he just ended up not playing. Tommy, what a difference a year makes. Every time that you would bring up Anthony Nelson, the sentence would begin with an LCP favorite, Anthony Nelson. You just went off for a good two or three minutes there. I didn't. I didn't hear one LCP favorite in that in that entire paragraph. What are we sour? Have you soured on Anthony Nelson also? I, I have not soured on him at all. I think. I I think one of the things you brought up with uh, Kale with him being in. Uh, Willard's doghouse. I think Anthony's in his doghouse too. But different players react differently to discipline. You know, you, you got to understand that you can't treat every one of your players the same because they're not, they're not all the same. They're not made up. You got to understand what their psyche is about. And I think, I think Anthony Nelson got broken this year, to be honest with you. So there's a difference between being in the doghouse for Willard relative to what Cal got and what Anthony Nelson got. Kale was still getting some run. He wasn't getting his, you know, almost 30 minutes a game run like he got last year. You know, he was down to 23 minutes a game. Anthony Nelson didn't step on the floor. In the last 11 games of the year, he got two DNPs. Two DNPs against Marquette and Villanova. And the reality is he essentially got a DNP in the last game against Creighton. He played the last 50 seconds in garbage time after they had the the blow-up fisticuffs with Sandro. If that game continues to play out, they probably don't blow the whistle, and Nelson doesn't even enter the game. So he ends the season on essentially three DMPs, and then the other nine games that he does play, he averages 5.1 minutes per game. Tom, he was a complete non-factor. He didn't get on the court for essentially the last month and a half of the season. Here's my issue. It's gotten to the point of being bad to the point where I don't think he's going to be on this roster next year. You don't think that when you have a player who gets completely disconnected from the team, the first thought in today's day and age is not a potential transfer? Well, sure. but And here's the reason why player development is in our ugly and in our bad sections here. When you can't recruit the big names, you got to bring up the medium names and we have not brought up those guys we've got guys that need to come and show you're a big player development guy let's see it well that's important because now all of a sudden going into next year's recruiting class and this is no knock on the two guys that they have that are coming in they, they want to be pirate blue so i'm all in if these guys want to be all in but so they've landed Domingo stevens and jahari long they got early signings solid three-star guys and there's nothing wrong with solid three-star guys. You know, Sandro, Jared Roden, those are solid three-star guys. Anthony Nelson, if everybody comes in and for their first two years progress or they make leaps, then yeah, you can get by on a program that has a bunch of solid guys that buy into the system. But all of a sudden, if you end up with an Anthony Nelson and end up with a complete miss, we run into a problem because Anthony Nelson is not the only miss. Right. If, if we're saying that Nelson is not going to progress and possibly leave the program, 
You know, you had players like Veer Singh and Dalton Soffer and Miles Carter and Eron Gordon. And, you know, these are all great guys and good people, but they just didn't fit into our system or were able to compete at the Big East level. Okay, so that's going to happen. And you're going to miss a lot of guys potentially going after these mid-tier players because we're trying to play at an elite level in the top 25 in one of the best conferences in the entire country playing a loaded schedule in the non-conference. So to me, the bad, Tommy, for this year in recruiting is not the two guys that we got. It's better to have a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. I agree with that. Sometimes we've gotten left holding the bag with nothing. But we said, let's get these two guys. We have room for more scholarship opportunities. And let's go now backfill with a four-star player. Let's go for the home run hit. And we missed out on Darius Mannix. We missed out on Timberlake. We missed out on Mam, you know, Matthew Alexander Moncrief. And now there's rumors, Tommy, that Zion Harmon. Don't say it, Mike. We, don't say it. He might go to Western Kentucky uh, over us. Now, the ghost Kentucky, of Ralph Willard lives. Uh, I mean, I understand it. Now the rumors are Western Kentucky is, you know, in his backyard. He wants to stay close to home. But when, when do the excuses stop? So Darius Maddox always oh, got a family member on the staff. Timberlake, oh, it's the, it's the better college experience down in South Beach. You know, Matthew uh, Alexander Moncrief, oh, it's playing time opportunity over at Oklahoma State, who was horrible this year. Not even like basketball relevance right now in the Big 12. And now we can't even, you know, out-recruit someone who wants to stay close to home in Kentucky. I, I'm sorry, but at some point, you have to be able to get over the hump and get one of these guys and kind of model yourself after Villanova. The Villanova gets a lot of solid four-star guys, and once in a while, they sprinkle in a five-star. We're like a level below that. You get a lot of good three-stars, and once in a while, sprinkle in a four-star. If you want to be a top 25 program, if you want to be a Final Four team, you can't hope for the Miles Powell to go from the fat kid to being first-team All-American. It just doesn't happen that often. It, I, I'm sorry. This topic always frustrates me a little bit. But not everything was bad this year, Mike. We've got plenty of good to talk about. And in the tradition of some of those award ceremonies, we're even going to come up with honorable mentions this year for good. So, Mike, <laughs> who is our first honorable mention as good this year? Shavar Reynolds, Tommy. Shavar oh, my Reynolds. God, did I just hear you give Shavar a compliment? I have got to give Shavar his compliments here, Tommy. He over exceeded expectations on the year last year. You know, he got his scholarship. He got some minutes and there were times that he struggled in our eyes. And we were concerned that if he was going to go from a seven minutes a game type player to the 15 minutes a game he got this year, that might be overextending him a little bit. And that some of those warts would continue to show through. And that's not the case. He played his typical, aggressive in your face defense disrupting the other team's best players sometimes offensively and he improved his shooting last year his shooting splits with the following 26 percent overall from the floor 15.6 percent in three-point range and look how it improved markedly improved 43 percent from the floor and 47.8 percent from the three-point range Willard was touting Shavar as the best shooter from three in practice last year. And we were laughing at the result that translated to the court of 15.6. 
Tommy shot almost fifty percent this year. Yeah, he looked good this year. I, you know, and and my biggest concerns with Shavar continue to be the positions he gets placed in. There, there's no reason for him to be playing point guard. There's no reason for him to be guarding guys like Sadiq Bay. But he was doing what we wanted him to do, Mike. When he had that open shot, he was taking it. And as you pointed out, more than not, he was actually making it this year. So kudos to Shavar. Our next honorable mention is... Jared Roden, my backup boy to Sandro Mamukelajili, right? Sandro went out and Jared Roden became my boy. It's like you were in heaven, Mike. You know, yeah, you replaced one boy with the other. Yeah, but we thought this in the beginning of the year. We thought Jared could be the most improved player, the sixth man of the year, depending on how he kind of, you know, evolved in his game. And I thought he did. He doubled his minutes played. He more than doubled all three of his major statistical categories in points, rebounds, and assists. And his three-point shooting which Laval Jordan was mocking in the open mic segment last year when we played Butler. Like, he only makes threes against us. Well, guess what? During Big East Conference play, he was making them against everybody. 44.6% during league play. Pretty good. Like, we're, we're always picking on us, ourselves for not being a good three-point shooting team. I just highlighted Shavart 47% and Roden at 44% during Big East play. That's pretty impressive. What really jumped off the page to me, though, with Roden, is in 14 games this year, he had eight or more rebounds. I'm really excited. I think he's poised to have a big breakout season upcoming next year. I am very high on Jared Roden and what he showed us so far this year. Okay. So, Mikey, here we come with the good from this year. We did come and play in the big games this year. We won four games against ranked opponents. We beat number seven, Maryland, without Sandro and Miles. We beat number five, Butler. We beat number 10, Villanova, in Philadelphia, baby. And again, we beat a 21st-ranked Butler team. I think we need to go back and kind of somewhat break down these games, not, not belabor them, but there were more important takeaways from those games relative to the success of the season. So let's go back to that first one. Let's go back to the game home against Maryland where they're ranked in the top 10. We are without Powell and Sandro. And at that point we are six and four on the season. We are coming off. I hate to do it, Tom and bring it up because we didn't even talk about this. The, the blowout at the rack, right? We didn't even put that in the bad or the ugly. We just kind of buried that under the rug a little bit, right? Swapped it under the rug, buried it six feet under, just kind of pretend it didn't happen. But at that point in the season, the wheels had come off. People were about to kind of jump off the bandwagon and it was just moving on because we didn't know when Powell was going to come back from this concussion. We were projected to play the first half of the Big East season without Sandro. And we didn't even have a marquee win in this vaunted non-conference schedule. But the fans still showed up, Tom. They showed up. And you know who showed up as well, Mike? The team showed up. We had unprecedented uh, contributions from lots of folks that game. We slowed that ball game down to like a 1950s crawl. But Anthony Nelson came to play. That was probably Q's first big, hey, look at me. I can be a dog too moment this season. I don't even think he needed to look at me. He needed to look in the mirror and realize he could be that guy. He needed that confidence to not defer to Miles. 
And that was the opportunity for him to put the team on uh, his shoulders, step up and be the guy. And I thought he was able to carry that throughout the rest of the season in other moments when Miles wasn't on the floor or if Miles wasn't having his best game, he kind of became that bat that Robin to his Batman at times. And, and he was not that leading up to this point in the season. Let's move on to that game at number five, Butler, where we won 78 to 70. Mikey, we go in a hinkle. We play a kind of blah first half. We're down by 10 and we make a ferocious comeback on the road. Jared Roden, your boy, makes a big three off of a great inbounds play, which makes it doubly more important. And Miles Powell came to play that game. He had big 29 points on that road game. To me, this game did a couple things, right? It showed that they could play in a big road environment you know, in the in-conference play. They've always done well at Hinkle, it seems, lately. But Butler at that point, you know, 15-1, and one, number five in the country. It was another look-at-us moment early in conference play. And they were, once again, like you said, down double digits. So I, we were chalking that one up as a loss kind of at halftime. Like, uh, not feeling too good about this one. But it became kind of their hallmark of it doesn't matter if we get down. This game proved to them that no matter what the situation was, they're going to have the ability to storm back. They did it in a hostile road environment. They had other guys step up. And it kind of, you know, showed them that, you know, we are or could be the class of the Big East right now. You know, we're undefeated. We just knocked Butler off of their perch. You know, number five in the country. Hadn't really lost other than a one-point loss at Baylor. That, to them, I thought, built their confidence to the point where it allowed them to go on that run to get to 8-0 in Big East play to start the year. And potentially the biggest regular season game in 10 years that we won, Mike, in all the time Kevin Willard's been here, beating number 10 Nova in Philadelphia. Control yourself here, Tommy. Control yourself here. Mike, it put us at 10-1 and one in the Big East. We had a three-game lead on the rest of the conference. It was the first win in Nova in over a quarter century, Mikey. I'm doing everything I can not to scream at the top of my lungs right now. Okay, do you remember? We're going to date ourselves again. Do you remember the Super Bowl where the San Francisco 49ers beat the Chargers? And Steve Young is the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. And as they're kind of wrapping up that victory, he's on the sidelines. Remember what he said to the cameras at that point? One of the players walked over and kind of just like puts his hands on the back of his jersey, kind of like making a motion to kind of grab something off of him. And Steve Young goes, the monkey's off my back. He goes, the monkey's <laughs> off my back. That was it. This is the monkey off the back for Seton Hall. They needed to have this happen because like you said, Tommy, if not now, when? Nova is going to continue to reload and reload year after year. They are going to put a perennial top 10 team on that floor. And how often are we going to be able to kind of match that type of talent, if not be the superior team? I don't know. I'm hoping that it happens more often than not, but that has not been the standard over the last decade. And they went in and they played one of their best games of the year. They deserved everything that they got for the accolades for this win. And it made me really proud to be a Pirate fan at that point because everybody knew about this win the next day in the sports world and then finally at home against 21st ranked butler 74 to 72 this is the sancho game winner game of course we it is. saw we you know what was great was on social media the seton hall twitter account asked for anyone's video 
of this final shot. And there was like five different angles from it. And it was great. And someone mixed them all together. It was just fantastic to watch because every time that ball went in, every time they started dancing, it got you excited. It's it's pretty cool. Whenever you can have a buzzer beater and then you look back years upon years, you, 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 there's fans and you debate, what was the most exciting buzzer beater? You know, what was the defining moment from that season? This is going to be one of those defining moments. The, the team was struggling. They needed to right the ship. They had melted down with the three three-pointers that tied the game, as we discussed in the in the bad section. And then Sandro and Q kind of come bail them out. I mean, that's just a pretty cool moment to go back and watch a 0.6-second shot or a, a shot with only 0.6 seconds left to go on the clock. Go in. The place goes nuts. They're dogpiling on them. It's, it's like they almost won the championship in that moment, right? It's the same thing that happened when Shavar hit that shot against St. John's last year. These are just special moments when you hit a buzzer beater. Or Sterling and Gibbs a, hits that shot against Nova in the quarterfinals. Of, of course. You just, you just don't forget those moments. And this is going to be one of those games which you will not forget as the years go by because of the game-winning shot. And to be honest, it was a big win. It was a big win. They needed it. They needed, to, like I said, right that ship, beat a top 25 team, get back in position to win the Big East title. So many elements of this game were on the line when he hit that shot. It was pretty cool. You know who gets kudos this year, Mike? The fans get kudos this year, Mike. We've spent so much time complaining that they do not show up at the Rock, that do not cheer their heads off unless there was some kind of big moment. Hey, Kudos to them this year. It didn't matter, right? 6.30 start, 9.30 start. The pretzels were too expensive. The parking was difficult to get out of the lot. All the reasons that we joke about why the fans can't show up. And I understand that they're out there. So not every fan can make it to every game. But you're right. They showed up this year. In the big moments, they were there. 14,000 for the Michigan State game. The season basically going down the tubes. And all they need is that moral support to kind of hang on to whatever thread of life they had left. And they were there. 13,313 strong for Maryland during winter break. Right? Mark Turgeon's like, oh, we got we to schedule this game during their winter break because we had nobody in our building last year. That, that kind of held us back. Sorry, Mark. Our fans showed up. Big win. Tom, how many times do you say it? How many fans would show up for the Fairfield game <laughs> during the early 90s? 12,000 strong at the Meadowlands, Mike. All right, well, we got 9,600 strong for Prairie View and 9,000 plus for, what was that, a Florida A&M, right? Mm -hmm. 9,000 in the building. That's normally like, you know, 3,000 fans would show up and you pick whatever seat you want previous years. 9,000 plus. That's basically a lower bowl sellout for those types of games. And when conference play kicked in, I understand it takes some time for the fans to jump on the bandwagon for that casual fan we talked about. But the average attendance during Biggie's play was 11,726, highlighted by 14,648 for the St. John's game and the third biggest turnout in the Rocks history for senior night, 16,863. Now, I know sometimes those numbers are slightly overinflated because they're ticket sales, but man, Tom... It felt like in some of those games, every one of those fans was in attendance. It, there weren't empty seats uh, for people kind of buying a ticket and then no showing. It felt in those nights that the place was rocking. Mike, I know you've said it's like kissing your sister, but I'm going to give another spot here to being co-Biggies champs. Now, I know we said we backed into it, but we have only won 
two other Big East championships, regular season championships in the history of the school. So wait, 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 wait. You, you want to flip flop now? We had this in the ugly, and now you're going to put this in the good. Make I, up your mind, Tom. Mike, whether the bad was backing into it, the good was still having a good enough season early on to actually claim this title. Remember, the first time the Seton Hall Pirates won the Big East Championship, they shared it with Georgetown in 91-92. So I will take this. I can't believe I'm going to do this because I felt like I've been doing it way too often this year. Tommy, I'm going to agree with you one last time on this year's podcast. Absolutely, we have to look back and be a little retrospective and, and call it for what it is. It's only the third time in program history that this has been accomplished. You don't have to like how it got accomplished with losing the last two and not winning it outright. But we are going to hang a banner for only the third time for this specific accomplishment. And in my eyes, I'm sorry for all those people that want to hang on to the glory of the 2016 Big East Tournament Championship because of how exciting it was beating Villanova. And, you know, and then the big bucket at the butt, basically in the last final seconds by Whitehead. When you win the regular season title, it's a larger body of work and it will always carry much more weight than the Big East tournament title. And that's not taking anything away from Isaiah Whitehead going by Ochefu and putting it off the glass. It's not. It's it's not. But there's going to be a moment where we get past all the difficult times of the what-ifs and the season not being complete and the, the bitter taste of not winning those last two games. And we are going to celebrate this team and hang a banner. And then 20 years will go by and we will come back and celebrate this team for hanging a banner. And just like Dan Dunn and company, we will come back 40 years later and we will recognize this team for being a special team. We will. Mike, we had it in the ugly. We had it in the bad. But we still had a lot of good player development this year. And it starts with the legit seven foot two Romaro Gill. Tommy, when I heard that we signed him as a Juco transfer, here are the kind of names that came to my mind. And once again, I always preface this with no disrespect to these other players or, you know, previous regimes, but be honest with me here. I, I heard that we signed Gill as a legit seven, two, and I'm thinking Aaron Jaramapur, Kevin Johnson, Shiraju, <laughs> Rashid Anthony, you know, a list of developmental big men that ended up not producing many tangible results on the court. We joked and we'll say this at nauseum for the last time. We, you know, we projected Gill to be similar to those guys, serviceable big men to the point of five fouls in a backup reserve center role. And after he redshirted that first year in backing up Delgado, I mean, I'm thinking, uh-oh, he couldn't even get on the court that first year. But retrospectively, man, that was a great move, right? Absolutely. I mean, we saw some signs in his junior year. Now, his junior year stats weren't necessarily great and, and had no idea it was going to come to what it was in his senior year. You know, he scored two points a game. He had almost three rebounds. He had about a block and a half a game, and he shot a miserable 35% from the free throw line, which, to be honest, didn't shock anybody with the way we shot free throws that year. But his senior year... I mean, his, his overall total numbers don't really scream it, but 
His Big East numbers were so much better. He ends up with almost eight points a game, almost six rebounds a game, and three big blocks per game. And, you know, Mike, I made a joke earlier in the season. Am I more shocked when he gets eight blocks a game or zero blocks a game? It's when he gets zero blocks a game, Mike. And he shot his free throws well this year. Rel- relatively, right? 67% up from that 35. Well, when do you see a guy who's that bad double his productivity from the free throw line? It's pretty impressive. He deserved the award of most improved player, hands down. There was some debate about defensive player of the year, but man, you're right, Tom. His blocks transformed what this team was defensively. We, we joked last year and we're like, wow, we're going to row essentially won the Maryland game or, you know, was the defining difference in that game. And he won or was a huge impact in that big road win last year at Xavier and Kevin's hyping him up. And we're like, eh, without Roe, man, they they are not the same team this year. He defined who they were defensively and other teams, other teams had to force Seton Hall out of their element to try to get him off the floor. And there were only one or two teams that could do that. That was Villanova and Creighton, which is why, we specifically struggled in those matchups because they found a way to neutralize Ramaro Gill. They didn't find a way to neutralize Powell, even though he didn't have his best performances in those games either, but they took Gill off the floor. That's crazy. Never thought we'd be having this kind of analytical breakdown of Rose impact his numbers when we first announced that he was joining the roster three years ago. So, you know, for the last time I will eat crow shame on us for putting him in that, you know, legit 7-2, just player developmental type category. Roe was a huge piece of this puzzle and deserves all the accolades he got, and he will be remembered going forward. Let's move on to more player development. Let's go to the heart and soul of this team, Quincy McKnight, the Bulldog on defense. Now, Mike, you know what was funny? I remember back that we were just hoping Quincy McKnight would turn into that Derek Gordon, heart of the team, kind of toughest guy, but maybe not the biggest stats. I think he became both. He became a quality point guard on this team. He put up really good numbers, and he was still the heart and soul of this team. Well, because back at that point, I was still under the belief that Anthony Nelson was still the truest and best natural point guard on this team. And that him with the ball was going to make the offense more fluid than anybody else. And that just that just didn't happen. I thought Nelson was going to get more time at the point. We were going to find more opportunities for Q to be more of that, like you said, that super six-man slide over, play off the ball. And there were times that he got to do that this year with Shavar in at point or with Powell out of the game. But at the end of the day, he started all 30 games. He averaged over 30 minutes per game, upped his numbers to 12 points, one and a half steals, which was top 10 in the Big East. And th- this is the number that just shocks me. Five and a half assists per game, Tom. Five and a half assists per game was second in the Big East. Did not see that coming. Again, we complained about that this was not a good three-point shooting team. But he improved his three-point shooting from last year's 27% to this year's 35%. And he shot 27 more attempts this year, Michael. And we hadn't even finished the year off. I, I, I Trust me, I, Q was a revelation offensively. I still think he was more of a lead guard. I still don't think he's a natural point guard. But for what he was able to accomplish from where he was, you know, struggling last year. We, we talked about, remember the Georgetown game? 
you know, we, we, we had that bad performance leading into that road uh, matchup at Georgetown, and he started Shavar at point guard. No, oh, yeah. he was struggling to the point where he couldn't even start in that crucial game on the road at Georgetown. And now we're sitting there going, wow, without Q on the floor, where are we as a team? I mean, look, look at some of these the performances and you highlight, you kind of alluded to it before in the Maryland game, he took over 38 minutes, 17 points, six assists, eight rebounds. We said it. That's the moment. That's the moment where he realized I am a huge piece of this team. I am allowed to be an offensive contributor. I don't need to take a back seat to anybody named miles Powell on this team. I can kind of be there and be a contributor and be the leader that I was when I was at sacred heart. And like we go back to this Oregon game, people kind of forget because we were just in this meltdown mode. Q had the cramps, came out of the game like two or three times at crucial stretches in that 19-point collapse. He was off the floor. I was still delusional that, oh, Q's out, Anthony Nelson's in, we're fine. But go back and give me Q down the stretch of that game. Do we lose? No, I don't know that we do. I think he settles us down and we take over for the rest of the game. And, and that changes the course of the Bahamas again, right? So now we, we hang on to beat Oregon. We move on to play Gonzaga. And just like, once again, kind of take something completely out of the ugly. And I never would have sat there and put that level of importance on cue for the offensive side of the floor. Tom, we didn't even talk about what he did defensively for the two years that he was here. He shut down the opposing player's best guy night in and night out. And we didn't even talk about it. We just talked about what he did from player development offensively, but he could have been defensive player of the year for all we you know, all we know if Roe wasn't there. Well, we thought he was uh, good enough to be a defensive player of the year last year. All right, Tom, th- this is it. We, we have to move on. Well, I think we've, we've set our piece in good, bad, and the ugly, but but now we need to kind of you hone know, in. I, I don't know if this is good, Mike. I think we need to put the great section in here. I, I, you beat me to it. You beat me to it. We, we have to end this recap of the season on Miles Powell. It just, it, there's no other way to do it. So go ahead, get, give your tale of the tape from Miles Powell. So so what's crazy about this is that not all the awards have yet to been a, be announced. But so far, he was Big East preseason player of the year, which is not so much as an award, but a kind of a prediction. He won that Big East player of the year. He was AP All-American first team. He was Sporting News All-American first team. He was Big East first team. The Haggerty hasn't come out yet. He's gonna always win winning the Haggerty. Always, always winning the Haggerty. There, there's oh, no, yes. there, I, there's no way he doesn't win the Haggerty. If the Hag- if they don't give him the Haggerty, stop giving it out. There's still an outside shot of him being National Player of the Year, which is probably gonna go to that kid from Iowa because hey, let's no, throw it to a kid from Iowa. Uh, it's going to Obi Tobin from Dayton. Stop it. I don't know, man. I think that Garza kid from Iowa is taking it. I'll bet you San Diego burrito. It goes to Obi Tobin. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's a good bet there. Mike, 21 points per game, second in the conference, 17th nationally, fourth among major conference players. So that's taking out all those guys who score all those points in the Sun Belt Conference or whatever. 25.8 points per game in conference road games. Mike, he didn't shy away when we were away from the friendly kind fines. Tom, you missed it. You have to put it into context for Seton Hall historical purposes. The fact that he was first team All-American, he joins Walter Dukes and Bob Davies as the only Pirates 
to earn first-team All-American honors. Terry DeHare didn't do it. Danny Calandrillo didn't do it. We're talking about going back into the 50s and 60s, and Powell is on that level now. I, I know, oh, I just did it, Tommy. I just put him ahead of Terry DeHair in some type of statistical measure. Oh, roll over in your grave there. I'm oh, not, my I'm goodness. Not, I'm not going to bring it up. This is Miles' time. This is Miles' time. I'm not going to do it. One of only three guys in program history cannot take that away from him. And you said it, 25.8 points per game on the road, scoring average during the conference. But that was not the only time that he stepped up and shined when the lights were the brightest. Tom, Michigan State. Remember, he, he was out for a month. This is like the worst rolled ankle known to man. Amputation never, time. We're taking his leg off. I've never seen more articles and more tweets and more updates or more, more massage therapy breakdowns of an ankle injury in my entire life. And there he is in his Willis Reed moment coming out against Michigan State and scoring 37 points on a national stage. This is like the second week of the season. All eyes were on this game, and he didn't disappoint. 37. It's unfortunate that we lost. And then once again, all eyes on us and Oregon in the battle for Atlantis. And he doesn't shy away again. 32. He's given, he's given the injector into his arms for the ice water in his veins as he's banging down threes. It was fun. And we lost that game too. But that's okay. Miles set the record for most points scored in the battle for Atlantis ever over a three-game stretch with 74 points. Trying to keep going? Then he gets a concussion. He, he's, he's probably never going to have his bearings for the rest of the season. But we all knew it. He was going to be out there for that DePaul game. He wasn't going to be out there for five minutes. They weren't going to work him back into the rotation. He was out there to play 27 points in a come-from-behind win on the road at DePaul, who at the time was 12-1, and and that was a marquee victory to kick off the Big East season. I'm running out of breath here. 29 in back-to-back games at Butler, ranked fifth at the time, at Madison Square Garden when we're down by double figures, and then 34 against Georgetown. He just loves to drub Georgetown during his career and to icing on the cake one more time, another 28 on the road against hated Marquette. <laughs> I, the, the, num- the numbers are off the charts, and you know what? We, we talked about it. Everybody throws the, in- the kitchen sink at him, and this was a stat that I'm going to steal from somebody else, but I thought it was interesting. Somebody wrote, uh, he filled one of the largest roles in recent history when comparing him to the other players that were in uh, competition for the Naismith Player of the Year Award. He took 40% of his shots from NBA three-point range, and you ready for this? Only 6% of those shots were spot-ups. Six percent were spot up from maybe means he was doing it off the dribble or coming off of a screen. Highly difficult shots. Maybe that's why his numbers were down overall collectively from three point range. Miles was one of the few guys that regressed in his shooting percentage year over year. But the team's offense would not be anywhere close to respectable without him. The offense ranked nationally 60th with him on the floor, 250th without him, and he finished third in the country in second half scoring. So when it mattered most and the chips were on the line, that's when he stepped up. Well, they just put a cherry on top. Let's talk about his milestones that he passed this year. He is officially first on all-time three-point field goals made. With that, he's first on all-time on three-point field goals attempted. Third on the all-time scoring list with 2,252 points. 
This is something interesting. I know you did some research on this. I'll give you the kudos, but I'm going to read it out. He is one of only four players in Seton Hall history to have 1,800 points or more, 400 rebounds or more, 300 assists or more, and 100 steals or more. He joins the vaunted crew of Terry DeHair, KC, Kadeen Carrington, and Andre Barrett. Eighth all-time in free throw percentage of 81%. Now, Mike, we were kind of talking about this prior, but we were talking all season long with what kind of down season Miles was having. We were spoiled, Mike. Look at all these accolades he was grabbing. First team Big East. First team All-American. Biggest player of the year. Haggerty Award winner in, in, whenever they announce it. Potentially National Player of the Year. And we're talking about a down year. We have been spoiled by this man. His numbers were down from his junior season to his senior season. But you said this, and I have to agree with you again. This is what happens when a player comes back and all eyes are on you and all the defensive scheming is to slow you down. Chances of duplicating those types of numbers again on the college level don't happen too often, right? But what he did, which is why I think at the end of the day, he deserved the Big East player of the year over someone like Marcus Howard is because his team got better. All that attention put around him and his numbers. He didn't go down in assists. He didn't go down in rebounds. He slightly went down in points per game. Um, His his percentages were a little bit uh, on the lower side from the year before, but the team won because of all the attention that he got. Other players on the floor got better. You think those other guys shot the the three-point percentages they shot because they had guys in their face? No. They had wide open shots because the team was scheming around Miles Powell. You think the pick and roll was as effective with Romaro Gill because they were worried that, you know, Roe was going to roll to the basket? No, they were double teaming Miles at the top of the three-point line, making sure he doesn't put a dagger in their eye. So Roe was getting easy dunks at the rim. He made everybody around them better, and the team won because of that. And I agree with John Fanta when he said it. That's why, with, with no doubt, he should have been the Big East Player of the Year, and I think the uh, the other coaches that voted recognize that. And our fans, looking back, we need to glorify him. We need to put him on that pedestal. We need to retire number 13. One last thing about Miles. You know, he gave us, over these last four years, some of the most incredible plays that I think we've seen in a long time in Seton Hall. I mean, you had to just grab your head and go, whoa, did I just see that? Tommy, normally we have a couple, you know, different scenarios here where we like kind of throw it in and we debate which one should kind of, you know, get the top billing. But but for me, I, I think this one's a no-brainer. It gets summed up all in one moment. Let's go back to senior night and the tribute that the seniors get at center court. And, and once again, it was it was a nice moment for the other three. But when Miles takes center stage and he takes his jersey which is encased in glass, and he raises it up above his head. There is not a dry eye in the building or even for anyone sitting on their couch at home, yours truly included. I mean, the emotion that Miles had on his face summed it up for all, right? You don't tell me that the players don't care. Don't tell me that it's about the money. He came back for his passion for the game, for his love of Seton Hall, And don't tell me 
that the almost 17,000 that came out didn't feel the same passion for this moment, didn't have the same love for Miles Powell. I mean, that moment is going to resonate over and over again when we play back clips for this year. So for me, if that, if that didn't hit your heartstrings, shame on you, because to me, that was the woe. Did you see that moment on the season? And if you haven't seen it yet, you better go out there and find a clip and watch the 60 seconds of it. Mikey, I was there. I was part of that 16 plus K. I told you you needed to go. I told you this was going to happen. The only uh. thing that should have happened, the only thing missing from that night was them taking that jersey and raising it to the rafters that night right there because there was no better chance of doing it or, or honoring that man than there. Were you waiting for that first team All-American vote to come in before you said, hmm? Yeah, I'm going to retire his number. No, you should have raised it right there. It would have been a beautiful moment. And yes, I really did just say that, Mike. <laughs> and there it goes. The final and worst segue of the season. All right, Tommy. I, I, we were also debating, do we go back and, and pick on some of the funny stuff that was said throughout the year? But once again, I, I think in culminating this season, we have to look back and and honestly realize that that this is the final time that we have heard what trenton makes the world takes yeah but but it, it will live it will live on forever in lcp history as there's no way you were going to take that out of our intro you, you cannot take that out of the montage as we lead into the show it has earned its right there forever if you ask me something about gus johnson saying when you hear that shot hit the net and then boom you know it's gonna be it's a beautiful beautiful sound it's like gus is a kid when he's doing it it's the woo, and he whipped it out in the best moments i know this is about the 2019-20 season but when he hits the shot against villanova when he you know when you have custer calling it and he's making the shot against marquette when when powell hits a shot the announcers just took it to another level because they got caught up in the moment and Gus just encapsulated what taking it to the next level as an announcer was all about with Miles Powell. Yes, he overused it at times, but when the moment was right, ah, it was it was awesome. Well, Mike, it only be fitting that in our final thoughts on our final rant of the season, we kind of talk about how we think the team would have performed in the NCAAs. Now, it would have been that fifth straight appearance that obviously didn't happen. Next year is still up for debate whether we're going to make that fifth tournament in a row or not. But let me just say, the NCAA is usually some sort of a crapshoot. You know, you get a bad matchup, you get a bad shooting night. Like Isaiah goes into the into a bad shooting night up in Denver in the thin air. And then all of a sudden, that great season kind of falls apart and everybody starts poo-pooing Isaiah's performance over that entire year. So it's kind of hard to say how we would have done. Did we have the talent to go far? I'm thinking we had the talent on that team to get to at least an Elite Eight. Anything less than a Sweet 16 would have been monstrously disappointing. Even just getting to a Sweet 16 at this point would have been a little bit like they left something on the table. I'm thinking this team had elite eight talent. And I think that's where that would have ended. See, I, I'll, I'll push it one level further. I really do believe that this team had that final four potential. It was possible. When teams hadn't seen Miles Powell and Rowe 
they were game changers and they were hard to stop, right? We're, we're talking about Michigan State, one of the most vaunted defenses, most solidly fundamentally put together programs in the country who by the end of the year was playing a, an elite level of basketball, couldn't stop Miles for 37. You know, Oregon, the elite team in the Pac-12, couldn't stop him. Numerous times when people had seen Miles Powell for the first time, they, they couldn't control him. There were teams that you're like, there's no way this team should be going inside against our defense. And those are the nights that Roe had eight to 10 blocks, it felt like, right? And then throughout the course of the rest of the Big East regular season, you're like, how did Roe only have one block on the night? How do you have zero blocks? Because we got scouted. Teams got wiser and they're like, we're not going in there. That would have happened, in my opinion, in the Big East tournament. These teams would not have known better. And the matchups, I think, would have been in our favor due to unfamiliarity with the Pirates. I think the two toughest games that they would have had in the NCAA tournament would have been their first game of each weekend. You know, that team that has a week to scout you. And that first game is probably going to be against a, a smaller mid-major team that could probably shoot the three pretty well. Those are teams that we wouldn't have matched up against, you know, typically, you know, too well throughout the year. I think that game would have been probably the hardest of that first weekend. I think we would have crushed whoever we played in the second game. Uh, I know Fant and I were debating, oh, but, but not BYU. I think we would have done a pretty good job in that second game and we would have advanced to the Sweet 16 because lack of time to prep for us. And then once again, now you're in the Sweet 16. You have a whole week to prep. I think that first game would have been difficult. But Tommy, if they would have won that Sweet 16 game and got to the Elite Eight the way you're predicting it, quick turnaround time, I honestly believe the Pirates were cutting down the nets and they were heading to Atlanta. I do. It's not out of the realm of possibility. If not now, when? And then and once they be get into back. that Final Four, Mikey, it's a crapshoot. Anyone can win it at that point. But, but they had a balanced team, right? And here's, the, here's the funny part about all these simulations. I think Brazil is writing up his recap, and he's like, surprisingly, Miles Powell didn't steal the show. It was a collective effort with four guys scoring in double figures to lead the Pirates to the title. They had multiple guys that could step up and steal a moment to support Powell and win a game in the NCAA tournament. Roden, Gill, Sandro, McKnight. God forbid Kale got hot like he did against Georgetown with the six three-pointers. They had the opportunity to be a special team. And I'm going to come full circle here. If not now, when is now going to be remembered as what if. But I, I will end like this. If I had the opportunity to do it all over again and go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago to the Bobby Gonzalez era, to the early Kevin Willard regime and follow this team Throughout a year on a podcast, I would never trade the roller coaster ride that this team puts us through the last few seasons. I know it, they tug at your heartstrings and they get us frustrated, but Tommy, when the highs are at their peak, uh, it's, it, it's just something that you can't, you, you crave for more. And I, and I thought this team was going to take us to that pinnacle and give us the ultimate high. I really did. Well, amen to that, Mike. And we come to the conclusion of the season, but that doesn't mean we get to rest. John Rothstein may get to sleep in May, but we certainly don't. We've got our summer interview series coming up. We're going to have a recruiting special sometime this summer. We'll talk about our predictions for next year then. I know a lot of writers are going with their way too early look ahead. 
Things haven't shaken out yet. We'll wait until they shake out a little more. So, Mikey, thank you for a wonderful time this season. And as we always say, go Big Blue. Go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 